This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. On Office Hours, we usually focus on the process, that is, what we say to the students and to others about what Scripture says and about what it means. That is, as it should be, because that's what we do here at Westminster Seminary, California. Sometimes, however, it's good to step back and look at the outcome. What happens to our students? Where do they go? How does the Lord use them? What becomes of them? One of those students turned graduate is the Reverend Chris Gordon. He's preaching pastor at the Escondido United Reformed Church, and he's host of Abounding Grace Radio. You can find him on the air in San Diego, in the Pacific Northwest, in Alberta, Canada, in Fresno, California, and in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You can find him online at agradio.org and at eurc.org. Prior to coming to seminary, Chris taught in a Christian school in the California Central Valley, and he graduated from Westminster Seminary, California in 2004. He served as pastor of the Linden United Reformed Church in Linden, Washington, and he was called to the Escondido United Reformed Church in 2012. This semester, however, Chris's ministry came full cycle as he filled in for Dr. Dennis Johnson by teaching one of our courses on preaching. And he joins us for this episode to talk about his journey, about what he's learned as a student, as a pastor, and now as a teacher of pastors. Hi, Chris, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's good to be with you. So let's get some background out of the way. Where did you grow up, and were you always Reformed? Well, I grew up in small Central Valley, California town of Lemoore, and I grew up in that small Central Valley town. Of course, I attended a Reformed church there in Hanford, California, attended the local Christian school there. That was the Christian Reformed Church in Hanford, California. So yeah, most of my upbringing was there in the Central Valley. After uh, my time there, I went up to play basketball at Humboldt State University. Something not everyone may know that you have a decent jump shot. I still can shoot fairly well. <laughs> I don't. I, I can't go around anyone anymore, but I can definitely sink them from the outside. You want to stay up on me, that's, that's right. for sure. At a certain point, the knees just go. <laughs> I remember that moment in, a, I think, a church league game when the brain said to the knees, okay, we're going to do this, and the knees sent back a message saying, would you clarify that, please? Yeah, that happened shortly after college for me. <laughs> oh, there you go. So Chris is an active basketball player, and you played on scholarship. Well, you know, Humboldt State University was fairly cheap. I signed to play. It just made me sound more important than what I was. You signed, they had letters of intent that went out and I signed to play there, but there wasn't much of a scholarship in those days for D2. So (laughs) I like to tell people that I signed, but I really didn't get much money. Of course, the tuition was, I think, two grand a semester. So I take it you didn't have ESPN cameras. No. So you played ball and went to school at Humboldt State. And after that, what did you do? After Humboldt State University, I came back to the Central Valley and I taught actually at a continuation high school for a period of time there in Visalia. And then I took a job at Central Valley Christian High School in Visalia and was there until I came to Westminster Seminary in 2001 to 2004. Why Westminster? After all, there were a lot of choices for a young man to look at for seminary all over North America and elsewhere. What was it that drew you to Escondido? Well, I'd like to say the sunshine. (laughs) I was a California boy, but no, at that time at Humboldt State, I came out, I think it was 90, roughly 97, 98. I came out to Westminster. Uh, There was a student here at that time taking classes and they had these seminary for a day, prospective student deals. And I came out and I just loved it. 
I was already starting to buy the books. I was already on track. I was reading Reformed theology. Of course, as I said, I was raised in a Reformed church, and maybe I could go into a little of my church background for why I started walking that path. But at that time, I came to Westminster Seminary, listened to the classes. I had no doubt where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. It was Westminster Seminary. There was really nothing else on the horizon or any other schools that I had a desire to attend for seminary. Everything about Westminster I heard was wonderful. The reputation was wonderful. And the students who were here at the time spoke so well of the seminary. I envied their life. I think every student goes to this. I wanted to get out of sort of secular study of all the other things and get into Bible study and learn the languages and do everything that I needed to do to become a pastor. So Westminster was the best option for me. As an undergraduate, you had to make some decisions about which way you were going to go theologically and the kinds of things that you were going to believe. Right. And that sort of leads to the church setting. When I was in Humboldt County, it was very interesting. I attended the local sort of mega Baptist church on campus. And when I was there, I remember my parents had visited and my dad, who raised me in a Reformed church, walked in and that day the band rocked and the pastor stood up and said, well, I don't really feel like preaching today. So we're going to have share time. And you can imagine where it went from there. And as we walked out, my dad said to me, he said, son, I raised you better than that. And so I was led to, opened up the phone book and found a little OPC church up there, Orthodox Presbyterian Church. The irony about that church was that the entire church was a sort of non-denom dispensational Baptist church. They had been going through Romans and they got to chapter nine and didn't know there was even this thing called Reformed. The entire church, pastor and all, ended up federating or joining the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So I was up there in the midst of a group that were just cutting their teeth in Reformed theology. While I'm thankful for my upbringing, I'm thankful for the setting in which I was raised. I'd never seen that kind of excitement over Reformed theology before. And I said, hey, that's my heritage. <laughs> I know this. I just had never appreciated it. And so now seeing people where the sort of fire was driving them of what they were learning and Reformed theology, their excitement over that, that led me to where I am today. I wanted in some form to do pastoral ministry and to preach uh, the doctrines of grace, to preach Reformed truths that I'd learned. I also had a campus at that time. We set out a Bible table and we were doing a lot of evangelism on the campus. And that also inspired kind of the direction I went and wanted to do for the ministry. The setting of your undergraduate education was not exactly amenable to or supportive of your Christian and Reformed profession of faith. No, that was, uh, <laughs> where do I begin with Humboldt State? Is that Berkeley too? <laughs> yeah, that gives the listener a sense of where you were, right. because not everybody may know what Humboldt State is, but it's not exactly a bastion of conservative thought. Yeah, at that time. Well, it's still not legal in California, marijuana. It may be in the future, but uh, in Humboldt County, it sure seemed to be. <laughs> uh, everywhere I went, people were out smoking it. It was a bastion of liberal thought. I remember having the book table out. An old professor walked by and he saw some of the tracks there and he recognized one of the names. And he looked at me, he says, Calvinism? And I said, yeah. He goes, does that still exist? And he stormed <laughs> off. I'll never forget in, in a few of the classes, the professors there, you know, how they characterized and described Calvinism, the white Protestant work ethic, and the terrible characterizations, the way that they portrayed the teachings of John Calvin, and how the white European male being evil and these sort of things, all rooted in the Calvinistic work ethic, that dominated at Humboldt State. Not even aware of all the criticisms that people have made of Weber's caricature of Calvinism. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So 2001, here you are at Escondido. Are you married yet? 
Yes. During my time, my year teaching at Central Valley Christian, I married my high school sweetheart, but actually stroller sweetheart. Our parents walked us in strollers <laughs> together. No one can really say that. I have a stroller sweetheart. Oh, that's nice. Um, so yeah, we married at that time and then uh, headed out a few months later to seminary, which wasn't the best sort of honeymoon, by the way. It was a little rough on us, those first years of seminary. <laughs> Maybe you should have taken a little time <laughs> I think so. in between, but okay. So here you are at seminary and you're married. And today, how many kids do you have? We have four children. So the Lord has blessed your family marvelously with a covenant family. So 2001, 2004, you're in seminary. How did it affect you? Did you find what you expected to find? Well, I loved my time at Westminster Seminary. I have nothing but positive to say about my time at Westminster Seminary. The friendships that I made, the professors that I had, you being one of them, by the way, I really enjoyed my time at Westminster Seminary. I think you sort of go into seminary with a lot of expectations, and some of them are a little unrealistic. You think, wow, I'm going to finally get to go study everything that I want to study. And I didn't realize how... And this just sort of reflects the educational challenge in our culture, how poor my undergrad was. And I'm not assaulting Humboldt State. I'm just saying in general, it was a whole new level for me uh, to come here and to do. And I realized that my habits, my study habits, everything had to change. That was tough for me to adjust to at first. I had some real moments thinking I shouldn't be here and do this, which of course put me on my knees in prayer. And I learned a lot more to trust in the Lord. It is true, though, that through it, you also have somewhat of a spiritual struggle during your time. You think that learning all this is going to be the most spiritually renewing. Actually, I found it to be a somewhat dry time spiritually for me, mainly because I kind of lost sight of what I was doing and the goals that I had. You sort of become a slave to the grade and the work. Isn't it also the case that as you're doing this, you're also redefining what piety is? And so on the one hand, sometimes when students come into seminary, they think of piety chiefly as a kind of mountaintop experience. That's right. And they think, I'm going to go to chapel, and I'm going to be in class, and I'm going to be in the library and at home, and I'm going to be studying all this stuff, and I'm going to be having a kind of perpetual series of mountaintop experiences. When, in fact, there's a lot of work here, and you find out that I hope that as you're studying, you need to pray, and as you pray, you need to study and that work and piety are not hermetically sealed, and that piety isn't really a series of mountaintop experiences. Well, I think that's absolutely right, that the sort of paradigms we have for piety and what we come in with, all the baggage, there's a sort of conflicting worlds that are going on here. So you're absolutely correct. It was my own problem. And learning to, you know, how to think in many ways, everything was changing for me at that time. Seminary is revolutionary. It is. I mean, it's Paul three years away. <laughs> you know? the, the incoming student needs to understand that the school isn't here simply to reinforce or affirm you necessarily in what you already think. We're here to educate. And challenge him. And challenge him. You know, yeah. We sometimes use the word train, and, and Bob Godfrey doesn't like that word, and I get what he's saying. He wants us to talk about education, and that's difficult. That's mm. painful. That's mm. challenging. And mm-hmm. so some of the things that an incoming student thinks may be right, some of them may not be right. And we're going to ask you to reevaluate things in light of the word, in light of church history, and in light of what the churches confess in our confessional documents. Not that we ask the students to subscribe them, but that's the approach from which we come. It was the best place I needed to be for preparation for what I'm doing. 
I believe that. The example of the professors, the subject matter, I mean, again, I can't speak highly enough of my experience here. I really, really enjoyed my time. I look back to this day fondly on that time. Now, I wouldn't want to necessarily go through all the stress of the exam. <laughs> I'm looking at these students right now thinking, I don't miss that glazed over look that I'm seeing on all of them. And you're having to grade some blue books now. That's right. I don't miss that. Again, redefining piety is right. And relationships with my friends here at seminary. That was wonderful. I can't speak highly enough about that. That's the bonds important. that we created here, yeah, it is very important. You really do connect with other students in a kind of an intense way. You know, this is a small enough place. There are about 150 of us so that you get to know everyone and particularly your classmates, the people with whom you enter the seminary and you're sitting in classes together. You know, it's not like university where you might see somebody that you know here or there. You're in this class together and that class together and you're kind of together for three or four years and you're in the lounge together. And so you really do develop and you're all heading in one way or another towards either the same path or some similar kind of calling. And so that kind of binds you together. Right. We leaned on each other. And I became really good at ping pong. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, yeah, which is good. That's important. You need to get away and just do something simple, right? After, you know, you've spent five, six, seven hours working on Greek paradigms or memorizing your Hebrew vocabulary or preparing for a medieval reformation exam. It's not a bad thing to do something very basic. So, how did seminary affect you? How were you different in 2004 when you graduated from 2001 when you entered? Uh, well, <laughs> I came in, and this is sort of a common statement that people make. You go in thinking you know everything and leave realizing you know nothing. <laughs> now, it's not true that I knew nothing, but you come in thinking you know more than what you do, and then you realize there's this vast, now open store of information that's being given to me from men who are very gifted and trained to do this, and I realize how much I need to learn yet. You don't know what you don't know. Exactly. When you come in, you don't realize it's how much you don't know. It's really eye-opening. So by the end of 2004, there was, again, you talk about piety, there was a sort of now right fear going out into this that developed in me because I'm thinking I had to really lean on the Lord for obviously for where he was going to send me and what I was going to do. But I still struggled with now I realize how much I still don't yet know and how much I want to know. In other words, I would love another three years here at Westminster. Then I'll be ready. (laughs) That thought entered my mind a lot. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. One of the things we often say is that we're trying to give you the tools to continue a lifelong pattern of learning. 
did we succeed with Absolutely. that? Do you think? Do you feel like when you graduated, even if you didn't know everything you wanted to know, you knew where to look and how to find it? Is that true? Absolutely. I mean, I was given the tools. I was given what I needed to do what I do. Obviously, you know, in a sense, only the Lord makes a pastor, right? A seminary doesn't create a pastor. We don't ordain anybody. No, not only that, a seminary can't create the gift of proclamation. Only the Lord does that. However, (laughs) we know the Lord uses means to accomplish his ends. And the best way to prepare a man is to set him apart and receive the best education with the best tools, especially languages, and how to read the Bible, how to think about the Bible. Westminster taught me that. And Westminster taught me, I think you'll appreciate this, Scott. This is going to sound so elementary, but I hope the listeners appreciate this. Westminster taught me how to read a story. That's huge. Yeah. Because because if you can't read a story, you're going to have a lot of trouble with the Bible because it begins in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a story. A story all the way through. But what I'm noticing, and I worry about with my generation of children I'm raising, they struggle to read a story. Reading the narrative, right? It takes too long. Yeah, and it does. <laughs> if, you're, if your attention span is 21 seconds, you're going to have trouble with a text that was designed to be heard and read at great length and repeatedly. Absolutely. That helped me tremendously. Yes. I mean, once you get out there, you're standing in the water, you're out doing the work, your feet are wet. But when you first opened up your Greek Testament in Linden... You knew what to do with it. When you opened up your Hebrew Bible, you weren't looking at something that didn't make any sense. You were looking at something that made sense. You knew that it goes from right to left, and you knew what this one meant and this one meant, and you knew how they related to each other. Truth be told, the problem was now I had learned so much. I had to calm down and not tell everyone everything in one sermon, right? (laughs) That is really important. That might be one of the most important lessons that a seminary student or a young preacher learns is that you have a lifetime of ministry, and your job is to preach this text, not the whole Bible, in each sermon. Right, and I think it goes to show that seminarians are known for having a lot to say and saying too much and speaking over here and over there. Well, it kind of proves that they've received a lot in their education. (laughs) And they're excited about it. They're excited. I mean, this is what you want for pastors going into pulpit ministry. You want that excitement. You want that fire. And those are other things in talking about development as a pastor you learn over time. Again, you're right. Once you're out in it, you do develop. You make progress. You continue to grow as a pastor. You grow in wisdom and how best to communicate these truths. But to answer your question, when I went in to the ministry, I had what I needed from Westminster. Absolutely. And your elders, when you went to Linden, helped you to know what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and they helped shape you. Is that right? My elders, again, I'm a big fan of young pastors going into established churches for the great benefit that you have godly men around you who've been in the ministry a long time, elders who know the ins and outs and so that you're not trying to do everything yourself. That was the greatest blessing for me was to lean on these men. I just had some wonderful elders up there who helped me through those years. And yeah, to take that call up in Linden, Washington, it was a fairly large church at that time. I think we were about 350 to 400. As a new young pastor, 27 years old, it was a daunting task. I remember saying to my wife, I feel like I've been trained to do this, but I really struggle with, I feel like I don't know how to be a pastor. That I really struggled with for a long time, how to learn to love the people, how to um, to care about them. I, I was so burdened about that up front, you know, those were my concerns. And that takes time. It right? does. And it, really, it's a matter, don't you think, of learning just to be with your people. I sometimes, you know, because of where I'm from and my background, you know, I think in these rural agrarian pictures in my head. And, you know, I spent 
summers working on my grandfather's farm. Grandma and Grandpa ran about 50 head of cattle over the summer. They buy them in the spring, sell them in the fall. And just being out with the livestock, you sort of learn to be, right? I didn't do anything. My job when I was out there was to be with them, putting up fence, you know, bucking bales. And pastors need to learn to be with their people, just being present with them, being present with them in the hospital, being present with them at home or in a Bible study or whatever. Whereas the seminary student might think, well, I've got all this stuff in me and I need to get it out and get it to them, which does happen. But being with them is almost as important as giving them the stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, there has to be a bond that's developed between the shepherd and the sheep, right? And it's just true. I was just speaking to the future alumni luncheon here at the Sim. And one of the things I said is that everyone expects going into the ministry, and this is part of our American problem in the church. We have everything, you know, bigger, faster, stronger, right? That's our whole culture. So we expect it to happen in the church. My wife and I have a theory. This is no hard, fast rule, but our theory is it takes five years for there to be a measure of trust to really be built between the congregation and the pastor so that they can really trust you and hear you. Now, at 27 years old, it took me six years for that to develop. For me to develop as a preacher, for that measure of trust between the congregation and the pastor to develop and my preaching to develop, all that needed to take place. They were so patient with me. I listened to my first sermons. <laughs> of course, every pastor says, I don't want to ever go back and re-preach a sermon. They always look bad, worse than probably what they were. But I look at my first sermons and think, those poor people, those poor people. <laughs> there aren't many jobs where everything you do gets recorded and then preserved for posterity, right? I mean, most people, when they go to work, their day is not recorded. But when we preach, it gets recorded and it's there for posterity. So 20 years later, you go back and you think, oh my, is there any way I can delete this recording? Well, not only that, but if you listen to your first sermons when you're 27, you sound like you haven't even gone through puberty yet. (laughs) So, you know, now I listen, it's an entirely different vocal projection and everything that goes on. So Technically, there's maturity. There's maturity, yeah, in so many ways, in so many different ways in the ministry. So there's that period that is hard. Your first two years in the ministry are really challenging. And as you say, it takes a while for the sheep to decide, hey, that guy with the pickup truck and the feed, he also has a rod in his hand. We like the feed. We're not sure about that rod. What does that mean? And after a while, they figure out, well, he's not here to hit us. He's here to protect us and he's here to feed us. Yeah, there's so much I learned going into the pulpit ministry. Things that, you know, I think going in, you try to solve every problem (laughs) and you take on more than you should. But I just told those students, these future alumni, don't ever lose sight of this. You're going to be pulled this way and that way. The way that the church is built, I mean, think of Michael Horton's book, Ordinary. Everyone loves to say this is an ordinary ministry. But to be honest, Scott, we in the reform world are the most impatient, and we really aren't too happy with an ordinary ministry. The reality is it's very ordinary. It's trench work. If I'm saying five or six years just to build that trust, it's going to be trench work. Nothing's going to happen fast. So the commitment to the means of grace and being confident in those means of grace is absolutely the key to a ministry that's faithful and honoring to the Lord. The results we've always said are his anyway. But I think the danger is going on early. You're pulled this way and that way away from confidence in those means of grace, which is something that Westminster did a wonderful job drilling into us. So I'm thankful for that. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
One of the things I think pastors learn as they go on is also the importance of prayer for your congregation. You know, when you're a seminary student, you're in a congregation, but you're not the minister of a congregation, and you don't develop that bond. And so you preach here, or you exhort here, or here, or here, or here, you know, on an occasional basis. But now when you get a call to a congregation, you are the minister, you are the shepherd of that congregation, and you begin to pray for them by name. And that changes your relationship. If you're praying for somebody by name, and you know their needs and their struggles, then when you bring the word to them, it has a personal quality to it. It comes with some background and some understanding and some care for those people, not simply as abstract entities, but as families and people over whom God has given you care. Right. I mean, prayer is one of our duties as a pastor. United Reformed Churches, we say that in our own church order. One of the duties of a pastor is to be continuing in prayer. In all honesty, I'm never happy with my prayer life. I mean, this is just me. I tend to incessantly beat myself up over my piety. <laughs> We're Americans, right? You get credit in America for being busy. Right. And yet, if you look at Acts, one of the things that the apostles said is, hey, we are so busy, we don't have time to do one of the most important things, right. which is to pray. Right. I mean, there's no excuse for it. And you're absolutely right. Prayer does develop that bond. Prayer helps you to know the needs of the sheep. It teaches you to love the sheep to consider the sheep. I use the directory. It's a wonderful way because I can see a picture of them. I need that. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that's also helped me as a pastor is, I mean, I have in both churches instituted and started a prayer meeting. Now I do that once a week so that not only does it promote accountability with prayer, but it gets groups of Christians together. I think uh, it helps us to specifically come together and pray for the needs of the sheep. That's been such a blessing for me. This is Wednesday morning. Yeah, I do this on Wednesday mornings. It's been something that I've always done. I started in Linden early on, and I've done it now for many years. That has helped me to keep me honest about prayer. I I need other people too. (laughs) I need help too. And this this is a a good way for us to make sure the needs of the congregation are being prayed for. And sometimes in congregational prayer, prayer, I'll be honest, I know that they should be done, but I'm not sure that Paul ever envisioned in the New Testament congregational prayers being lists of congregational personal prayer needs. I think that was to be done like we're doing it as groups of Christians coming together. But liturgically, in the worship service, if you look at our traditional forms, right, the forms Calvin used and other prayer forms that you find in the Dutch church orders, we don't see necessarily great lists. Right. There might be an opportunity to mention some things. Absolutely. Absolutely. We do it wisely. So now you're here teaching a course and you're coming to the end of the semester and you've been working with students trying to help them learn to preach. What have you learned by teaching these young men about preaching and listening to them preach? It's been such a blessing. I really have enjoyed the students here. I have to say that. I think they were a little, you know, who is this new guy coming in here? I'm stepping in to the position of a few veterans here to do this for a semester, and especially Dr. Johnson, Dennis Johnson, who was my professor. So this was a great honor and privilege. I wasn't sure I should be the one to do it, but Dennis Johnson assured me that he'd like me to do it. So I then stepped in to do it. The students have been great. I've really enjoyed my time doing it. I've learned a lot from them. But I think one of my roles has been to try to help them in light of now 12 years of pastoral experience of preaching. I do think there is a benefit of, at times, having pastors come in to do this. I really do. Because of the sort of week-in, week-out grind of preaching, we're just doing it. I mean, sometimes it feels like that. I'm cranking out sermons twice a week. And uh, you learn a lot doing that, but I can help 
some of these students with the way they're approaching the text, questions that they're asking when they come to a text. I think there's some things that humbly I say, I think I can help them with. That's been a real blessing to be able to do. And they've received that very well. I think it's been a very encouraging class for all of us. Are you encouraged about the future of preaching based on what you're hearing from the students? Yes. I I mean, I've heard some wonderful sermons in there. That's been encouraging for me to hear good sermons from some of the students. One of the challenges I notice with the students, and I guess gets back to why I said earlier, reading a story. I think we all have the challenge when we come to a, a text to simply ask the basic question, what is the main point of what the author is saying to us here? Why is he saying it? To capture that, it seems to me, and this was my problem early on, so this is why I think I'm able to help them. We hit a text and then it's a springboard for everything else. But to really be honest in integrity and deal with the intention of the author by the inspiration of the Spirit, to give the people what that text is saying and to capture it in a way that's helpful, to drive that main point home to the heart as God's answer to the problem of our sin and misery and his answer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we can do that from that text and make that clear, I think we're doing a real service to the sheep and to the church. And so if I can help them with that, that's something that's great. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.